Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the communities for themes to expand upon. We keep our banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about the top things to teach in Linux. So let's get into episode number five. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. And with me today is the camera empress of the Destination Linux Network, Wendy, but the court gesture and gamer enabler of the Destination Linux Network, Matt. He's not here because he said he had more important things to do than hang out with us. So how are you, Wendy? I'm doing pretty good. Unfortunately, yep, there will be no game of the week this week. I'm sure some of you, that's what you absolutely look forward to, is what kind of game is Matt going to tell you about this week? But unfortunately... There's nothing overall looking at kind of what we have to talk about this week. There's not really anything game related. It's actually been a while since there hasn't been game related subjects on the show notes. Hmm, I'm thinking about it. I do have a game related topic, but I was going to save it for when Matt was here. So I don't know. Next time. Yeah, maybe next time. So Wendy, I understand you're watching somebody else's robot team. Was this for uh, inspiration? Yeah, it was. Our younger group of kids, some of them have a few years before it's time for them to move up to a different robot group and other ones that's actually coming up really, really quick. So we decided to go over and see the last chance for our team to go to Worlds to see if they were going to get a ticket to go to Worlds. And our team had an awesome showing and it was my first time getting to see what things look like for the FTC kids. And the difference in their robots for one is they're so much bigger. They're not made with Legos like our robot is, but it's actually you've got metal and hydraulics and all of these other different sensors that they're able to use in order to complete their tasks. And the kids, as they were watching, they're like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. They actually get to use remote controls. Now, for the first 30 seconds, the robot has to run autonomously. It has to be programmed to do and achieve certain things. After that time, there's a countdown. They pick up their controllers. Well, that's very cool. Yeah, and go to town with a partner. They have a partner team that they're working with, and it's kind of randomized until you get to the finals and semifinals is who is going to be on those teams. But then they work together in order to complete this task. And it's really, really cool to see how some of these kids went from Lego League and then now at FTC. Or there's other kids. Part of the reason why we were there too, not just for our team to be able to see what comes next, what they can do after this, but also so that maybe families that are there with younger kids can see that, hey, you don't have to be 16 in order to get into robotics you can actually start at a much, much younger age. And here are these Lego robotics activities that the kids can participate in and get started thinking about how that stuff goes together, how to code it, and then take those skills as they're moving on to these older competition style groups. It was so much fun. Had a blast getting to go there. Our team won't be going to Worlds this year, but they had an amazing showing. They really did. I loved watching their robot run and getting to see just how different it was from ours. Well, yeah, that is super cool. I like the fact that you can see different levels of robotics and Lego being the entry level into it and then building out of other durable goods, I guess construction material, other robots, you know, out of metal, aluminum, plastics, whatever. Yeah, that's very cool. I hope it's super encouraging 
for kids to want to explore and, and do more in robotics. By kids, I mean everyone in your Lego group, not just your kids. Everybody. I love how building something and working together as a group, the teamwork that it builds between the members, but also the inspiration. And you can see how things bounce off of each other when groups of people are working together and they have this excitement, enthusiasm, and so forth. So that has to be just energizing to watch these kids. It's really awesome you're doing that. It is. It is so much fun for me. It's fun for them. And it's one of those skills that they can take with them when they leave. Whether they continue on with STEM activities as a profession or not, it's something that can stay with them for a lifetime. Absolutely. Your 3D printer has been super hard at work and it's got me looking even more at getting a 3D printer for us. What was one of the things that you've built with that since you got it set up? One of the first things I actually started building, but it took me a while because I'm easily distracted, was a 1U Raspberry Pi rack. A Pi rack, I suppose. A bracket for my two-post server rack thing. Too many racks in this one sentence. So it has six slots. I think we talked about putting something in my server rack to organize better the Raspberry Pi instead of the Pi hole. And I was going to purchase one and it was quite expensive. So I found a solution on Thingiverse and after printing it off, so taking into account materials, not the electricity, but the materials for the plastic, as well as the hardware I had to buy at a local hardware store, it was about half the cost of a used one that I saw on eBay. And I really like it. It has more slots. Each Raspberry Pi sits in its own little tray that you can slide out. And so it's really easy to change one out or do whatever you got to do, modify things and pop it back in or pop a new one in. You don't have to take the whole rack off to, to service the pies. So I really like it. I did a video on it. It's probably not a very good video, but I enjoyed making it and I have some little bits of humor in there. Okay, one little bit of humor in there. Also, I illustrate the difficulties I personally had on the design and how it was meant to be utilized and how I'm utilizing it. So I put a video together on that. I really enjoy the improved organization of my server now. I like it that things feel a little bit more purposeful rather than just having just a Raspberry Pi sitting there. And when I do build out another Pi to be a weather station monitoring device and report to Home Assistant, that will also be in that rack. It may actually use one of the other trays for maybe other components and such to go along with that. So we'll see. I'm very excited that I have this done so I can move on to so I can move on to other 3D printing adventures. Yeah, that's kind of a big one to get done. It sounded like there was multiple parts that you needed to print and get work together. So yes. it wasn't a quick process. Nope, sure was not. Now, is your 3D printer connected directly to your main system or... That's kind of one of the things that I'm curious about how you're using this 3D printer or getting the prints onto it, especially as I'm looking to get one. I've never owned a 3D printer before. So is there like hardware communication between your printer and your OpenSUSE system? Or are you putting the files on an SD card or something and then transferring them over? How does that work? Right now I'm using the SD card method. So I'm using the sneaker net, but on the list of things to build is actually something called OctoPrint. And so so you take a Raspberry Pi, don't worry, I have it ready to go, and you use that as kind of a controller of sorts for the 3D printer. And that connects to the USB slot of the 3D printer and then you can add a camera to it so you can actually see what your printer is doing even if you're not next to it. It allows you to send prints from your computer over to OctoPrint and then have it manage everything. So it can be like a print spooler for your 3D printer. Ooh. That is coming. I have a few more parts I have to buy to get that to work. That's going to be a future project. It's a pretty common thing for people to do. Also, I think I'm going to go with like making everything beige in color to match the Commodore 64. So I think that's the plan. <laughs> I got some beige filament for my 3D printer. Although I see that most people use PLA or polylactic acid, I have become a fan of using ABS. I like the finish of it better. It is more finicky to print. And as a result, or I should say as a consequence of doing more ABS, I'm going to have to build some sort of a enclosure for the 3D printer.
printer. I already purchased some acrylic, some quarter inch acrylic that I'll build a box out of to help regulate the temperature so I have less curling. But as long as the bed is level and I take some precautions, printing ABS is no more difficult really. It's a little bit of a higher temperature, about 40 degrees higher, so about 100 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than PLA. The finish is so much better. It is stronger. It's not as brittle. You know, for a lot of things, it really doesn't matter. You know, like when I printed off a bunch of Nintendo and Super Nintendo cartridge holders, I'm, I'm building now Atari now too. That can be PLA because it's not going to have any real stress on it. I'm just putting cartridges in it and it's not going to get hot, right. so hot in here that it's going to melt. For other applications, like if you do something for like your car, let's say I decide to build a car pewter using a Raspberry Pi somehow, I will want to print everything in ABS because PLA will start to soften in temperatures that the inside of a vehicle can get. I want to get better at doing ABS and focus more on ABS, even though it is more trouble to do, which is why I want to do it so I can get good at it, know the characteristics of ABS and, and how it reacts in different ways. Is the issue with curling because it's cooling down too much during the print, so it's not holding the temperature and it, yeah, it's too cool. It's the next layer touches down. Right, which is why I want to put a little enclosure around it so that the temperature stays a little better regulated. Very interesting. I'm excited to pick your brain some more about this as you work on this Octopi. Is this an expensive upgrade or not too bad? It's just a matter of finding the bits and pieces. It's probably about an $80 upgrade if you include the cost of the Pi. I'm going one extra step in there and I want the Raspberry Pi to pull power from the 3D printer as well. Mm. That's another thing. The reason being is I just want to make it kind of a cleaner setup. It all fits nicely in the one box when, it, when it's all done. It's not really that much more expensive. I think it's going to be just having the camera. The camera is actually probably the most expensive part besides the Pi. The camera and then the, the ribbon extension cable is where more of the cost is. Most of the parts you 3D print for it anyway. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so that you and your team can get back to doing what matters most building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one or a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up using do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So get started with that free $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform. Go to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Wendy, you and I are in the home education arena and we use Linux. I know you know that, but just in case somebody else didn't know that we knew we use Linux, you know, I just wanted them to know as well. And I know you have started incorporating teaching Linux or, been, or using Linux machines in education at some level. And this is something I've really been thinking hard about, especially as I've been digging more into the Raspberry Pi, specifically the Pi 400 and the official Raspberry Pi beginner's guide that I've been just getting a flood of ideas of things that I could teach kids in Linux, you know, to make them Linux aware, perhaps even build some curiosity about computing and the wondrous things you can do with it. With you doing the Lego League, you're teaching another aspect of technology with kids. And so I wanted to have a discussion with you about what are some different things that we could teach or someone who's interested in teaching 
Linux to kids, some areas that could be covered at a basic and more advanced level? One of the basics that we've done in the past, and it was my very, very first computer class that I was offered for one of our homeschool co-op groups. And that was just a basic kind of Linux desktop class. Now, we weren't exploring all of the desktops. They got to kind of play with one. But in most of these cases, you know, they'd only seen a Windows computer. Some of them had only ever really seen a Mac computer. And so it was a whole new experience. Where are things? How do you just navigate the desktop and get to what you need to do? Now, kids are for the most part really, really flexible. But it was an opportunity for them to see What are these different pieces of open source software that I can find on a Linux desktop? How do I navigate and do the things on a Linux desktop that I've been doing on a Windows system? As we know from the different challenges we've watched and made comments on, and anybody who's made a switch, it's not exactly the same. It does take some time to kind of play with and learn. And for me, it was kind of one of the first experiences for them to just kind of get to sit down with a Linux system, knowing that it's not Windows and be able to get to play with it and do some of those different manipulations. I really enjoyed the class and I've mentioned it before, but at the very, very end, there was a kid who said he wanted to wipe the system, just completely wipe it. He'd mentioned a way to do that on Windows and I'm like, oh yeah, you could do that on Linux too. And on the last day of class, I let him run it. I'm like, here it is, go ahead and run it. This is a learning environment and it's fun. Like everybody needs to do that (laughs) once. So, (laughs) and it's easy to reinstall ultimately. Exactly. It's super, super easy to reinstall. To go one step above that, I would love to do a similar class but where the kids are installing from the very beginning, where I walk in with the laptops and the installation media, the computers are completely wiped, and we're starting from ground zero from the installation to using that desktop and then trying out different desktops. I know Plasma is the favorite for me, but it's not necessarily what is the best workflow for every single person. And we have the joy of having so many different desktops that it would be nice to have the kids have that basic knowledge of here's the separate operating system. I know how to get it on my system. And if I am choosing one, not necessarily every Linux distro, because holy crap, we could probably have a distro hopping class, but never really get anywhere just because you'd spend so much time installing. And I would spend my life at home downloading and creating install media. So not a distro hop every week. You don't want to get the kids addicted to hopping distros right out of the gate. That could be a negative behavior, perhaps. I'm kidding. I don't know. It <laughs> seems like maybe you don't get them distro hoppers anonymous out there. We don't want getting them the taste of that so quickly at a young age, which is what would lead me into the question. If you're going to have kids install a Linux distribution, what would be that default desktop environment? For me personally, I would want them to have plasma. I think it's the best experience because you can make it what you want. And I think kids love to change and move things around. You know, maybe that's not the best desktop to start with. That's the one that I would also start with, but it's the one that I'm most comfortable in. It's the one that I live in. And so it's the one that's easiest for me to answer questions for. As we went down the line playing with different desktop environments, it would be a more, I need to look up the answer too, because it's not a desktop that I use on every single occasion, which is good for me to go test out new ones anyway. I'm not going to do that on my main system because I need it for work-related stuff, and then my family uses it for entertainment-related items. So it needs to stay exactly where it is right now, 
But being able to play with some of these different desktop environments with the kids and find out some of these answers would be pretty cool. So we definitely start out with Plasma, but that's because it's what I know. I agree that it's super flexible and all of the different things that you can do with it. There's so many tweaks and changes that you can make to it. And I think that for those who are wanting a very highly customized desktop, it's a great place for them to be. My daughter has mentioned several times when I've had GNOME pulled up when we were doing different things that she actually likes the layout of GNOME. She likes how that looks and feels. It has more of a tablet UI. I don't want to say tablet UI, but in a way it sometimes kind of can feel that way. Probably because it almost feels more like a tablet UI in the sense that you open up the menu, it comes across your whole screen. I don't know, but she does seem to like the overall look of GNOME and getting into applications from GNOME, like on the laptop that she's using to do some drawing to have that touchscreen sensitivity on. She's actually liking GNOME. Now that's not something that I would ordinarily pick for her because it's not the desktop that I choose to use, but in her being able to experiment with it, she does like the GNOME desktop. And I don't want my technology biases in what I use every day to overshadow what the kids have possibilities in using as they go on. Now, i3 would be a little bit more difficult. I'd say we'd have to save that one for a more advanced class, one that was more familiar with all kinds of things, just because i3 is definitely not one that I use at home. Yeah, same here. They would need to do some figuring on how to get things working and the like. But I would love to be able to offer that environment where they won't be able to install these things on average on their home computers and being able to see what that looks like and how they can take and manipulate all of the options that are out there in Linux. My biases would also say start with Plasma because I think that's the most exciting of the desktops. I think that's where things are really happening. But I can see an argument for something like GNOME because it's locked down, but it means it's just not fun. I don't care if that bothers somebody to hear that. GNOME is just not a fun desktop environment. Yeah, definitely not for me. Definitely not for me. But like I said, I wouldn't have expected my daughter to like it, but she did. Yeah, well, if she likes it, cool. Again, it's not fun for me. I think Cinnamon is nice because it's very familiar. Mate and XFC, mm. I think, are also great options. I think an MX Linux would be a great way for someone to start and play with Linux as well, like in an education environment, especially since you can very easily build your own custom ISO based on your settings. So it'd be very easy to reflash and whatnot. So I think I feel like they got a lot of the tooling already built in for a classroom environment. Right. First, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I'm a pretty big fan of the OpenSUSE. But I think the installer is probably a little bit much for a basic level Linux class. You know, I mean, like a Calamari's would be a better thing. So maybe a Geeko Linux based on OpenSUSE. That would be fun to do. I'd have to think about that. But I like the idea of just having the kids play with the Linux desktop and do things. Maybe a very simple, this is how you write a letter or this is how you do a spreadsheet or something like that, but just do it in Linux instead. I guess like basic office stuff, you know, things you need for yeah. you know, managing a household, kind of the basics. Like right now I have my oldest, he manages all the eggs, the chickens lay. I have him using a spreadsheet on a Linux system. And so he's tracking the numbers of each eggs that we get right now. So white or brown, green, olive, turkey, duck, and bantam eggs. And it's kind of neat to see, you know, how often and when the chickens lay and, and how many eggs we've produced and, and so forth. He's enjoying that. Now he can see 
you know, how much we're spending on feed versus how much we're getting in value in egg. It's pretty cool for him to see that. It's not really a Linux class per se, but he prefers the Plasma desktop environment himself. Although I haven't really let him try others and I think about it. Maybe I should change that and see what happens. He likes things a certain way. I think it's it from his dad. It'd be interesting to see what would happen if I did change it on him, like if he would like, you know, lose it. Might be a fun experiment. May not like that switch. Things may not be in the same place anymore and kind of throw him off a little bit. Yeah. Which I think is part of the reason why it's fun to just let kids play with a Linux desktop in general. The installation process, being able to play what it looks like once you get there. They won't always be at home. And it may be one of those situations where hey, let's buy this used computer, you know, here's my allowance, pitch in, buy a computer, and then put Linux on it. It is one of those ways to maybe open the door to have a Linux system at home for them, because now this is my right. my school thing. This is what I'm learning on. This is what I'm building on. So I know our class right now at co-op is currently learning how to code Python on a Linux desktop system. Not only that, but they are doing it in the community version of PyCharm. I've also had kids already say, this is really cool. I want my own computer or a computer that I can take with me and do different coding on. Now they may not all want to do Python like we're working on right now. One of the kids expressed that he really, really wants to learn how to code Java. And some of that I know has to deal with being very interested in Minecraft. Yeah, I was going to say Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those outlets to see these are the things that you can do. Here's the different building environments that you have available to you that you don't have to go spend money on in order to learn these different things. What do you think about coding Python on Linux? Is that something that you do a lot of? Is it something that you're thinking about teaching to your own children or homeschool co-ops? How would that look for you? All the above of everything you said. Uh, right now, I'm still learning it. I sort of took a break from it because I had a lot of other things crop up with the move. And then now I'm putting away a fallen tree, which is, man, trees are messy. So much for Arbor Day. The thing I want to start with my kids on before Python is Scratch. I think Python is the destination here because destination Linux, ha. Huh? I think Python is more of a destination because there's so many analytical tools that are built for Python. There's so many things you can do with Python. If you know Python, you can contribute to tons of projects out there. Importantly for me, FreeCAD is a Python-based or largely Python-based project that you can contribute toward. But I think like for my younger ones, I don't know that Python would be what I would start with. The concepts of programming, a little bit harder to grasp, I think. I grew up using BASIC on the Commodore 64. Ah, see, I got it in there. And then I went to what's something called Amos Professional, which is a basic-like operating system. And then from there, I did Bash, a little bit of Python, stuff like that. But what I like to start my kids on is that Scratch 3 programming, because it's all visual. So they can actually see in their heads how things relate with one another. Because programming isn't necessarily the language, the syntax of the language. It's largely the concepts of how these parts and pieces go together. And once you can understand that, then the language is just an implementation detail. I want to get my kids to do Python. Absolutely. I'm sort of leaning towards starting with Scratch 3 after probably this spring, which is actually why I want to talk to you about this today, anyone in the community, of what they think about how to implement or execute a class for a small group of kids. I know that there's interest in my co-op for such a thing. I'm just really fuzzy on how to execute this effectively. So we have been using Scratch in order to code our robot currently. That is what we're using with those really nice drag and drop kind of tile based coding. And one of the things that we've done, and I love the fact that 
our leader kind of brought this up to the kids was we need to write pseudocode first. We need to lay out exactly what we want the robot to do. And that's exactly what we had them do. And we used the example of making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, if it is take out the bread, put peanut butter and jelly on it, that could turn into so many different things. Are you taking the bread out of a cupboard? So you're just doing that and it's still in the bag and you set your jars of peanut butter and jelly on it? Well, according to your instructions, that would make sense. And we need to do a very step-by-step detailed, what do we need at every single step of the way to make that happen? So once we had our pseudocode written out and they could see step-by-step exactly what that robot needed to do, then we went over to Scratch and started looking at the different blocks. What does this one do? What do we need it to do? Are there two events that need to happen at the same time and go from there? But I 100% agree with you that having a basic foundation of what is coding, what does that actually mean, and what are the processes to get there. Now, you're still going to have adventures along the way. You're still going to look at it and go, well, this is the way I think it should go when it wants blocks arranged differently. I had one of those situations not too long ago when I was working with the color sensors on our robot. I knew that I needed it to stop at a color line. I had everything else in the way I wanted it to, but there was just one little piece that even though we were using a scratch-based system, that still was throwing me off. And I ended up getting to take the robot home, play with it by myself when none of the kids were around and figure it out. So now when we go back here this week, I can show them the stuff that I found. But just being able to do that with these blocks does lay a really nice foundation when you're actually having to type out the code itself. I really like that pseudocode idea. That would be actually a fun way to start with my kids on programming is how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, just the thinking out logically all the steps required and then breaking down each of those steps. So a subroutine could be take out the bread. And within that routine of take out the bread, there would be take the bread out of the bread drawer or whatever. Right. And so forth. Check to make sure the bread isn't already out. If the bread is out, go to line whatever. Yeah. Do you have a true or false? Is that out or not? Yeah. Yes. That's such a good idea. Like, I don't know why I didn't think about that, which is why I love this podcast. I think that's great. I'm going to implement that probably sooner rather than later because you can do that without any technology. It primes them for the idea of thinking logically and breaking down problems logically. That's just brilliant. Well, I'm glad I could share. I didn't come up with the idea. Our super awesome team leader is the one that came up with it, but I'm glad it helped you too. Yeah, that's great. Something else that I want to do eventually, and again, I want to get through Scratch and then Python, but that physical programming, which I know you are doing with the Lego League, and probably I could do it sooner than later, but I really want to get the use a Raspberry Pi and do that physical programming with a kid. I have lots. When I say lots, I mean more than I'm comfortable admitting, I have lots of parts to do things with. And so I would love to build things with the kids and, and experiment and, and so forth. I go back to that Raspberry Pi Beginner's Guide because they have a whole chapter on physical computing with Scratch and Python. You know, it breaks down the GPIOs and the fun things you can do with it with one of those breadboards. Oh, yeah. That's something that I also want to do, starting first with making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, moving on to Scratch, and then maybe doing some physical programming from there because you can do Scratch physical programming. But I would love to do Python with the kids as well. I'm really caught up on the peanut butter jelly sandwich analogy. What a good idea. My question though is at what age, the kids that are in your class, what is their approximate ages for the computer class that you do? For the computer class right now, I do have a little bit older kids. We're sticking with kids that are a little bit older. 
The youngest I think I have in there is 11 or 12. And mainly that was just because I wanted kids that could have a little bit more of an attention span. I'm not standing right with them all the time. No, right. We are working on something together. I'm also learning it at the same time. So asking questions is totally awesome. We've looked up answers in the middle of class before as we are going through the lesson all of us are doing which is fantastic, but I need them to be a little bit more focused on being able to accomplish tasks without having to have someone looking over their shoulder all of the time for this particular group of kids. Yeah, that makes sense. For the Lego group, which we will be coding our robot in Python next year, as I talked about last week and our purchasing of our own robot for home use, In that case, we have anywhere from the ages 9 to, I think, the cutoff for our team, and that's nationally, is 13, maybe 14. I think it's somewhere in there is where the cutoff, I'd have to look at the official rules again, but it's somewhere in there as the age group. And we have a fairly young group of kids. We have everywhere from 9-year-olds in there to 11, 12, I think is our top end right now for our current group of kids. And this is where coding and scratch has been kind of nice for some because they've been able to drag and drop it over. But I want to expand that. I don't want to make it difficult for the younger kids. So that's why I don't necessarily want to use the application that comes with the Spike Prime kits is when you are coding in that one, because I did play with some Python on it while I've had it home. While you're coding in that one, it's not like using PyCharm. It's not like using Sublime or some of those others where it'll help autofill. And that's probably one of my biggest issues with it. Yes, you need to be checking your work as you're going along, but I've already decided this variable equals this. I need to use it multiple times in my code and they make it so much harder by making you type it out every single time. And there was one point when I went to run the code and it didn't work. I got this error that came back up and I was like, what in the world, what's going on? And it was this undefined variable. Well, I had just put a letter in wrong when I was typing it back in and now my code doesn't work. And I really don't want the kids to get frustrated because we've spent this time, we've wrote it out, we go to run it and now, oh, look at that. It doesn't work. And you have to dig back through all of those lines to figure it out. I mean, you do have to regardless. That's just the joys of programming. But I don't want it to be a minor spelling error that could be fixed by using something like an actual code editor instead of one of these different versions of it that doesn't have this autofill feature. I think Pybricks doesn't necessarily have the autofill feature yet. So the plan is to have the kids using something like PyCharm to be writing their code out, and then we could move it over to Pybricks or whatnot to actually run the code on. I want them to be able to see what it's like to contribute to a project. So we have this different code that we are going to be working on together. And how do we submit that code? How does it get implemented upstream? How does the changes that we made get checked in order to be added to the overall project that we're working on? And I'm not exactly sure how all that's going to work because we are dealing with younger students. But I will have the Linux laptops there. So the ones that I have received from Bill, they're going to end up being 
part of multiple classes inside our co-op season. They will be getting used for Lego League. The kids will be able to write their code on them. They'll be able to submit their code from there in the upstream pattern. We have multiple coders on our team. Some kids prefer the building part of it. Some kids prefer the coding part of it and they get to kind of be where they're most comfortable, where they want to kind of expand in their growth that way. And so I want each kid an opportunity to be able to work on the code of that and how best to do that is let's work on different parts of it or work on things collaboratively, but in a way that we are submitting our code upstream and then it has to be brought back into the overall code of the robot. That's the plan. That's what I want to happen. It's one of the things that, as I mentioned last week, I've talked to Bill about Um, But I'm still figuring out how all of those bits and pieces work together. I'm so excited, but overwhelmed at the same time, like how to make this all fit inside of a classroom environment and run as smoothly as possible. It would be even better if the kids could work on some of the code at home, be able to submit it and then come back that following week or the next day, just kind of depending on when our practice structure will kind of work around itself. I don't know what it'll look like next year. We've got a different group of kids. We're doing things a little bit different as far as schedules go, but it would be nice that they're not just sitting idle between the times we're getting together. It would be really, really cool if they could be thinking about that code, working on that code, even when we're not together. I wonder if you could do something like GitHub or GitLab or one of those things. Git's probably a class in and of itself. But it would be neat to do that kind of collaboration like that. It is. And that's one of the things that I talked with Bill about is being able to set up an education environment in a GitHub or a GitLab in order to facilitate the overall dream of this class. And so it's going to take me quite a bit of work this summer. I guarantee you're going to hear me talking about it as I'm working through it, trying to figuring out how best to incorporate this all together. But that is kind of the way we're leaning. So yeah, it'll be an additional class in and of itself of how to submit and run things to a GitHub or GitLab instance. But I think overall, the beneficial part of this is when they leave our group and move on to other robotics or if they choose to start contributing to maybe other open source projects or who knows what they can do with that material, they already have a ground base. And it's one of those things that if we're working on it, And I'm just saying that, hey, it's not necessarily working for this group of kids. We need to do something different. I'm not afraid to step back and be like, okay, we need to look at the drawing board and figure something out. But right now, that's the overall dream. And I'm more than willing once we have a foundation laid out to let you know how it's actually working and what things we need to tweak for this particular age group of kids. Yeah, you're uh, definitely operating at a much bigger picture than I am at this point, but I love it. I hope that you can uh, continue to share this summer as you plan that out, because I would like to borrow from you as much as possible in this to uh, make something happen here just a little bit better than what I have going on right now, which is, you know, nothing. This episode of Linux LR is brought to you by Bitwarden. One thing we can do to protect ourselves is having unique passwords for every online account that we have. I've been using Bitwarden for a while now to do just that. It not only helps me keep track of the many passwords I now have, it includes a random password generator, you can set the length of special characters, and so much more. But here it's open source, receives third-party security auditing, and you can get started for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN. 
Want some of their premium features like one gigabyte of file storage, vault health reports, or just support the project? It starts for only $10 a year. Jump over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account now. Wendy, you had mentioned that there were some power issues before you were able to release the last episode of Linux Out Loud. And so now you're thinking about doing some sort of a UPS or buying UPS or what are you thinking about here? Yeah, as I was editing episode four of Linux Out Loud, if you follow me on Mastodon, you already saw the notification that I was having some power issues and exactly what was going on is our power was bumping. It wasn't staying off, but it would bump and everything would go down and then just a second later, everything would be back up and it had gone through this cycle like a couple times. So the power had bumped. It doesn't happen very often, but I'm like, oh, well, that sucks because I was in the middle of editing. I was already tired. It was late. I get the computer started back up, realized that the recovered file had some issues. So I needed to go back to my last save, (laughs) which wasn't close enough to the power bump. So I had some work that needed to be redone. And then just as I was getting to start working again, the power bumped again. And I kind of panicked. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Not a very good situation. And it was after this that my husband, who had been asleep in the living room, Magneto had been asleep in there because, as you know, our bedroom counts as multiple things, including the office, comes back in to go to sleep and goes, hey, are you ready to spend the money on a UPS now? And I'm like, yes, yes, absolutely. Because I was scared to even turn (laughs) my computer back on. I didn't want another bump to mess with my hard drives, to mess with the data that I was currently accessing, like any of that stuff. I did not even want to turn my system back on, but I knew that there was still editing to do. There was still show stuff that had to get finished. And so I grabbed a USB. I got all of the files that I needed copied over to a USB drive just in case I needed to use a laptop. Thankfully, my daughter's laptop should be suitable enough for editing, but I didn't end up having to use it. That was the end of the power bumps once I'd finally kind of let everything settle for a little bit. The wind died down. We were good to go. I finished editing the show on my main desktop, listened through it, all of that that good stuff got released on time. But now it's one of those things that I absolutely have to get a UPS. And it doesn't have to be a big one, especially this first one, but enough that I can go ahead and shut down my computer without that jarring power bump going on and all of the things that it can do to the system in the middle of a read-write. Yeah, that can be uh, some scary stuff there. And modern file systems are more tolerant to it. You know, things like ButterFS. It's still not a good thing to have happen. Not sure if you recall, but a few weeks ago, I was having some power bumping here and actually lost power while we were recording. And I do have everything on UPS because I live in Michigan and it's there's so many trees, you're going to lose power at some point in time, especially when things are windy. My computers, my individual UPSs at the endpoints of computers, I got some cheap ones on eBay for like 70 bucks each and they held out for an extended period of time, although I did start shutting a bunch of stuff down around me just to make sure I could squeeze out enough time to make it through the end of the show. I did get a much larger one for my server. This is actually some time ago and the batteries were no good. So I took a bit of a gamble and I put new batteries in it and it's been going strong. It will power the server for a few hours, my entire network stack for a few hours. So I know I can keep operational for quite a while in the event of a power outage. I was thinking about that situation where we were recording the show and you were getting power bumps. And other than saying, hey, we might want to pick this up a little bit. My power's out right now. The show continued (laughs) just the way it was supposed to. You were there the whole time. Your power eventually came back on. And so you didn't end up needing to leave early in that case. 
that is one of the things that I was thinking about last night as I was sitting there looking at my tower, knowing the work that needed to be done and afraid to even turn it on to do it. So that is absolutely happening. I'd be curious about the ones that you have. I would eventually like a really nice one, one that would sustain it for a little bit longer, maybe the time to finish uploading a show or, you know, just kind of depending on what those needs might be. So there isn't a disruption in stuff that needs to go out or work that needs to be done on the system. Even when there's a power bump, we really don't have that that often. Like I'm serious. It really doesn't happen that often. I live in the desert. There's really not that many trees around. Usually our worst power outages come in the winter when a truck is slid off the road and taken a power pole with it. Otherwise, our power is normally really, really stable. But in case something like that happens again, I want to make sure that my data is protected, my hardware is protected, and that I can safely shut down the computer or finish something that needs to be done in a shorter time period. Personally, I prefer a UPS taking the brunt of a hit and going out on me than the computer itself. Exactly. Computer's a lot harder to um, replace its bits, but a UPS, unfortunate when they do fail, they're less work to replace. Especially right now where hardware is so crazy expensive, like to replace parts of this computer would, oh man, it's overwhelming just to even think about. Absolutely it is. I don't even want to think about it. The UPS systems that I did buy, I got for $65 each on eBay. They were new, although they're sold out, I checked. They're 600 volt amps, and that does allow my C64 imposter to run for quite a while because it's not very power hungry. You can look for something like that. I don't know what your power requirements are on your power, but you might want to scale your UPS to match your tower, whatever that might be. Yeah, I'll definitely do some looking into this. It's been a while since I actually checked out what the power consumption, what the wattage is rated for right now. I do have a power supply in it that's way bigger than I actually needed, but some of that just came down to what was available at the time that I was buying parts, and I found this platinum rated power supply for an extremely good price, so that's kind of why I have the one that I do, but I will go back into PC Park Picker. I love it for this kind of thing. Actually, I think I still have this build saved in there. So that would be a good time to pull up that part list that I have oh, yeah. and kind of see what that's rated at and pick my UPS from there. Yeah, that's a great idea. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, they'll give you an estimate of what your power consumption is going to be based on all your hardware. Yeah, if you do that, they'll give you a good idea of what size of UPS you need to buy and how long it'll last you. Sounds like a plan. Thanks for chatting this out with me. I need to get on that today. So the rest of you that are hearing this, if I haven't ordered one yet, make sure you're chatting with me on the discourse form or sending me some messages on Macedon asking if I've bought that yet. Because like everything that happens, I get busy doing something else and forget. And I do not want to have this happen again. Be sending me reminders. I'll send you reminders too. Perfect. We're kind of jumping back into both topics for you from 3D printing and back in the classroom. What are you working on that combines both of those, Nate? I want to do something for my class to give them a gift that says me at the end of the school year and also something around the 3D printing area. I've talked about it with the parents a few times. They're very interested in learning more about it. Well, I shouldn't say I found it. There's a Telegram group called Maker's Corner, and someone shared this fidget button that you can print off, and it just snaps together and just fidget with it. It has a nice click to it, has a nice feel. I printed off one just to see how it would go, and I like it a lot. What I'm going to do is I'm going to print off 16 frames and buttons for kids to assemble. 
and then some color caps that they can snap on. Now, once you snap them on, they're pretty much on there forever. When they do that, then it's done. Like I have some colors. So I'll do like green, blue, yellow, red, and pink, I think. And then I'll let the kids choose on each side what they want to put on. And then that'll be the end of that. And they can take it home and break it. And it doesn't matter. But it's a kind of a gift that they can have that isn't going to cost me much to do. And is a reminder of me as their tutor they had this year. So that's what I'm thinking of doing. I've printed off the frames already. And I'll be printing the springs. They have different tensions of springs too. Like a soft, a normal, and a strong one. I'm just doing the normal ones. It feels fine. I hope to have the springs printed off sometime today. And then this week I'll be printing off the caps. I don't know if I'll do it like right at the end of the year or maybe a couple weeks before the end of the year, but just so the kids can have something, a fun little toy. Remember their slightly nutty tutor from the year. You know, if they break it, who cares? Once they take it, I feel as though I've washed my hands of it and I don't really care at that point. This is a fun little project that they get to put together. How much time total is it going to take you to print all of these off? Do you have to print quite a few of them of each kind or time-wise, what are you looking at? For the frames and the springs, it's going to be about 16 hours of printing. For the caps, I'm not really sure, but it won't take very long. Because I'm going to do different colors, I'm going to do probably eight of each color. I imagine at least another day or so worth of printing there. Probably start one in the morning, or probably another one in the afternoon, then one right before I go to bed, and that should probably be enough. I haven't actually sliced that up yet to get how long that's going to be. I will include a link in the show notes for the snappy fidget button in case anybody else is interested in checking that out. Perfect. Maybe it's one of the things that we will make after we get our 3D printer. Oh, more on that to come. My kids like it. They play with it quite a long time, much longer than I anticipated. So there's that. And then there's no Matt here for his game recommendation. So that's too bad. Sorry, guys. Once again, no game of the week this week. You'll have to check back next week and see what he's got for us. Maybe it'll be a double whammy after having him gone for a week. That's a good idea. He should be uh, responsible for two suggestions next week to make up for his absence this week. Love it. (laughs) Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse forum, drop us a line under this video, or on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. For other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at destinationlinux.network. Show off your love for your favorite podcast and shows by visiting DLN Merch Store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Games to Be Here shirt. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome sode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. 